No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. Unfortunately, Marilia is not available today, but I have two very special guests. And if you tuned into the show last week, you know that we talked to two really wonderful guests who... uh, um, Dr. Laura Brown and Ruth uh, Ben-Gait, I guess, and they took the position that Donald Trump should not be prosecuted. Well, we have a couple of experts today that might have a slightly different view, and, and I think that's interesting, and we really need to discuss it. And they are at, and Mr. Asher Hildebrand, who is an associate professor of practice in Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. His academic interests include American politics, legitimate, I'm sorry, legislative institutions, can't read my own writing, civic participation, and advocacy. Uh, also, democratic democracy and U.S. foreign policy. And he spent 15 years in Congress and on political campaigns, holding a leadership position as chief of staff for Representative David Price of North Carolina. We also have with us Aziz Huck. Uh, he is a Frank and Bernice Jane, J. Greenberg professor of law at the University of Chicago Law School. He's a scholar in US, on U.S. and comparative constitutional law. He works on topics ranging from democratic backsliding, God, do I have some questions for you, to regulating uh, AI. He works as a counsel and then as a director of the Brennan Center of Liberty and National Security, and he was a law clerk for Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, God bless you, and has also written for the New York Times and the Washington Post. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, let, let me start uh, with you, uh, Mr. Hildebrand. In U.S. News and World Report, uh, you said that prosecuting Trump can make him a martyr. Do you, do, you, do you think that's really a that, – I got to tell you, I have that sentiment, and I wonder what leads you to believe that'll, that may happen. Well, first of all, thanks, Senator, for uh, for the service you give the residents of the District of Columbia, oh, where I you. used to live, and also for having us on the program. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that – the the nation and the Department of Justice really face a terrible dilemma here because uh, if they choose to prosecute Donald Trump, um, they do risk uh, civil unrest, uh, perhaps even civil war, uh, sort of further uh, martyring him in the view of his supporters. But the other half of uh, the other half of what I said to U.S. News and World Report is that I think uh, actually that the alternative is even worse. That not prosecuting him would have even greater consequences by sending a signal of impunity uh, for uh, trying to uh, overturn the will of the American voters at a time when uh, when democracy is really hanging in the balance. Um, and so uh, so it's a, a dilemma that uh, no country, no uh, attorney general, no president should have to face, um, but it's the one we find ourselves in right now. And and do you agree with that, Mr. Huff? Do you think that we'll end up, if we prosecute him, we'll end up making him a martyr and making things worse? I, I, I agree uh, with uh, that assessment. I think that uh, the 
country is caught in a double bind. I think that the actions of the former president uh, demonstrate the ways in which a elected official, particularly the president, him or herself, can engage in lawless uh, or perhaps illegal behavior uh, that places the uh, country at a structural uh, uh, double bind. Uh, either forego uh, justice in the individual case with the loss of the signal that wrongdoing will be uh, identified, condemned, and punished, or uh, pursue a path that uh, doesn't just risk creating a uh, aura of martyrdom around the former president in ways that exacerbate civic tensions, but that seem to strike directly at the principle of democracy as a system in which uh, multiple parties compete for power. And when one party is out of power, it doesn't need to worry about the governing authority using their temporary hold in power to coerce or silence the opposition. It might be that that uh, coercion or silence is justified by the facts of what uh, the former president did, but that doesn't change the, uh, the impression that governing power would be used to silence uh, an opposition uh, uh, leader in ways that are deeply problematic in a democratic system that is committed to the peaceful transfer of power and a world in which uh, opposition leaders do not need to worry about having the fact of their opposition criminalized. Well, you know, I agree with a lot of what you just said, but uh, can I ask you, do you think that we have another path? Is there another path? Uh, is prosecuting Mark Meadows, Rudolph Giuliani, uh, all the people that were around uh, the president that facilitated this, um, this you know, facilitated him uh, in his delusions. Uh, does would would that accomplish the same thing? If we put them in jail, does that vindicate uh, the system and and uh, uh, make it all right, or do we do do we need to prosecute him? Can we, go ahead. I, I think sorry. that there's a multiplicity of other paths, and the problem is that the same lack of political will, the same fragmentation of our public sphere into uh, some elements that are uh, highly. Uh, partisan and unreliable sources of information yield similar kinds of problems if one takes those alternative paths. So uh, absolutely, you're right that one possibility is to uh, use the prosecution of those who were working alongside former President Trump, Meadows, Giuliani, Eastman, um, in ways that, A, demonstrate uh, directly the illegality of the underlying schemes to obstruct the uh, role of Congress in counting electoral votes, uh, but B, use those trials as showcases for the criminality of uh, or the criminal actions alleged to have been taken by the former president. Something like this happened in the Nixon era also, uh, where trials of Nixon subordinates were became vehicles for illustrating the uh, criminal actions that Nixon himself had taken. Uh, so it's not impossible that uh, these trials could have that effect and have the signaling uh, consequences. Two other options I'd very, very quickly put on the table. Uh, the first, it's useful to remember that we have states as well as the federal government. And even though the New York district attorney, uh, for reasons that are, I, I think, quite unclear, has abandoned the uh, investigation and potential prosecution of the former president, uh, Georgia prosecutors continue to uh, investigate the president's role with respect to these specific events. 
Uh, and it's not inconceivable that a Georgia grand jury might hand down a prosecution in ways that I think are, don't implicate the same concern about the peaceful transition of power and the role of an opposition, because it's not the person in power in the national office who is leading the prosecution. So there is the Georgia prosecution. Uh, the, th- the third option I'd put on the table is the United States like almost every other democratic country, has a constitution in which criminal sanctions are not the only vehicles for punishing uh, elected actors or for uh, sanctioning elected actors who take, who use their power against the democratic system. Uh, it, it's also why we have, one of the reasons why we have impeachment, impeachment was tried, it didn't work. Uh, there is also section three of the 14th Amendment that permits uh, actors who have engaged in certain kinds of insurrectionary conduct to be excluded from national politics. That's a less severe and therefore less likely to produce uh, the public aura of martyrship option uh, that if there were political will in Congress, and as you know as well as I do, that's a big, big if, uh, would be a very uh, would be a, a potent alternative to the possibility of criminal prosecution. Well, let me ask you, I think the fact that you brought up Section 3 of the the 14th Amendment, that's something I've asked my guests that have discussed this uh, previously, and and they were unclear on on how that would work. But but I think that's a really good good idea. But let me ask you, Mr. Hildebrand, since you have experience uh, as a staffer in Congress, that's just not going to happen if the Republicans take over the House, right? We're not going to we're not going to invoke the Fourteenth Amendment uh, provision, which, by the way, says that anybody basically that's had an elected office who is involved in an insurrection or it facilitates people that are, are involved in ex, uh, insurrection uh, can can be removed by Congress. That wouldn't happen, do you think, Mr. Hildebrand? The short answer is no. I mean, I think it's a very appealing possibility for the reasons that, as he says, uh, it could um, be a form of accountability, a potentially powerful form of accountability that sends a signal that uh, the the actions of President Trump uh, are not acceptable in a democracy without also uh, invoking the kind of fraught question of prosecuting him with the full power of the the, the federal government and the current administration. I think there are a couple of uh, problems with it. One is uh, though the, just just the you know the the slim chances that uh, a, a Congress that's already um, quite polarized that that uh, in, in which the Republican Party would not even participate in the January 6th committee hearings in the first place would take action on it. And Aziz knows much more than I on on the mechanics of this. But my understanding is that the, that it would be a, a a heavy lift. But the other uh, issue I worry about, and this is just another um, inherent dilemma we're facing here, is that um, while uh, while Donald Trump himself uh, might um, perceive the uh, being uh, ruled ineligible for for future office uh, as uh, the, a, a pretty significant um, penalty, a pretty significant form of accountability, um, I do worry that uh, that you know this is no longer just about Donald Trump. Of course, this is about. Uh, now uh, uh, a growing number of candidates, elected officials all over the country uh, who are uh, proponents of the big lie, who are not even in all cases uh, necessarily joined at the hip to to Trump. Uh, This is now a movement that is much broader than Trump. And I feel like uh, it's beyond the the mandate of the January 6th committee or even the Department of Justice to sort of get – get the genie back in the bottle, that's that's not a realistic expectation. I do feel like that uh, criminal prosecution sends a, a powerful signal, not just to Donald Trump, but for all of the other elected officials that are out there uh, endorsing the big lie, lo- uh, looking at this, because if we're ever going to, uh, to, to kind of get a hold on um, this uh, this 
virus that is metastasized now throughout the Republican Party around the country, then it's got to be by changing the incentives that elected officials are facing as they're talking about this. And I just uh, I think that calls for the most powerful remedy possible. I say that, though, in full uh, full acknowledgement that there are some significant trade-offs. And so it's just not an easy question. Well, you know, the point that you bring up about uh, you know, the metastasizing of this movement. Uh, we certainly see, I think, that the January 6th committee, if they've done anything, they've, they've uh, put Trump in a position now where I think other Republicans are willing to stand up against them. So if that's true, I mean, assuming that this man runs again, and uh, gets into the primary, uh, won't he tear apart the Republican Party, given that there's these two factions? And is it one faction of the party? Wouldn't they be interested in getting rid of him politically? Putting him into, you know, uh, putting him into, to, out to pasture? You, you think that might increase the ability that they'd be able to do something under the 14th Amendment? I don't know about the 14th Amendment, and I'll let, let Aziz speak to that. Okay. I, uh, this, this answer won't surprise you uh, because I am a Democrat. I've worked for Democrats. But I, I see personally the best case scenario politically being um, a, a very divisive Republican primary between Donald Trump and another candidate, whether it's Ron DeSantis or anybody else. And that fractures the party and creates space for the reemergence of a center-right Republican Party committed to uh, to principles of democracy, uh, uh, and I'm not naive about a third party, but but I guess that's a possibility as well. Um, I think there's uh, I, I think the other two scenarios we're looking at, which are probably more likely, are one. Trump is jettisoned by Republican elites uh, because he's been damaged by uh, his conduct and by the January 6 hearings, uh, and they rally around an alternative who may be not Donald Trump, but is not necessarily more committed to democratic principles and to upholding the rule of law. And then the worst case scenario to me is the coalescence uh, around Donald Trump, rallying back around Donald Trump and allowing him to um, you know, to run for president and to uh, pursue uh, election subversion again with the benefit of having learned uh, learned uh, uh, how uh, how to succeed um, through his experience so far. And that's not a political judgment purely because I actually think politically a lot of Democrats would rather have Donald Trump on the ticket than to have a Ron DeSantis or another candidate seen as more formidable but in terms of uh, uh, of preserving American democracy, I personally don't want to see Donald Trump anywhere near an electoral college majority ever again. Well, I agree with you 100 percent. As a Democrat, I say, go Larry Hogan, uh, you know, get somebody in there that that's more of a centrist. I agree. I, I, I agree with that. And unfortunately, what you said just said uh, rings so true when we see Democrats now, uh, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee just gave $430,000 to a Trump candidate because they want him to win in the primary against a Republican who stood up against Trump and voted for impeachment because they think he'll be easier to beat in the, in, in the general election. So I hope it's not true that, you know, that we get Trump and, and, you know, and the Democrats figure he's easier to beat. Um, let me ask you, Aziz, uh, uh, what do you think legally, since you're a lawyer, what do you think legally would be our chances? The thing that I fear is that this gets out there. The one thing the guy has excelled at is litigation. He, he can tie things up. He's got more lawyers than, you know, Carter has liver pills, as we used to say. But uh, um, what do you think the chances are? No president has ever gone to jail. Do you think there's any chance at all that he could be prosecuted and put in jail? 
I, I think that there are a number of potential uh, charges that could be brought as a matter of federal criminal law. I do not know what the charges that are available in Georgia are. And I would flag again that it might be that practically the Georgia proceedings, which is well into the grand jury phase, are more likely to bear fruit than uh, the federal uh, charges. At the federal level, um, I I think it is um, clear that with respect to, for example, the charge of obstructing the function of Congress with respect to an official act, where the official act was the counting of electoral college votes on January the 6th, there is a substantial body of testimonial and documentary evidence, much of which has been gathered by the January 6th committee, that is supportive of some, um, but perhaps not every single one, of the different points of fact that a prosecutor would have to uh, not just allege, but prove up with respect to the former president. My understanding of the evidence that's been uh, produced so far is the, uh, the, the most difficult point of law that would be presented in that hypothetical prosecution and the one that a, a prosecutor would grapple with the hardest is the need to point to some affirmative action that the president took that led directly and uh, led predictably to the violence that occurred uh, in, uh, in, in the morning and afternoon of that day. Um, I, I'm well aware of the content of the particular speech uh, that he gave that morning. I, I'm well aware of the evidence about uh, what he said to his staff, uh, uh, the earlier statements that he had made uh, to groups like the Proud Boys. I still think that there is a, a reasonable prosecutor would, would really have to grapple with whether that was sufficient evidence uh, on that point. I, I guess I'd add one other thing, which is, There is an argument that is circulating uh, online to the effect that the Attorney General does not have discretion with respect to whether to bring uh, charges. That is, if the Attorney General is presented with uh, the evidence that demonstrates that there was a criminal act, uh, at that point, it's up to the Attorney General to uh, bring charges. They They don't have any choice in the matter. Well, you know, I can tell you as a layman that what you just outlined is my one of my big problems, because I think to myself, hey, look, if I told my buddy that, you know, my buddy said he needed money and I said, here, go rob a liquor store and they caught him, they wouldn't prosecute me. They'd prosecute him. So that's a problem I have. Like, are we going to be able to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt that 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 his words are really what led People that showed up armed and ready to roll anyway, I mean, that that seems like a big problem. I think you're exactly right. Um, Mr. Hildebrand, I want to ask you, you said, because this is very important to me, I speak internationally uh, on on several occasions. And by the way, when I go, when Trump was in office and I would go to these international conferences, they had no, no interest in speaking to me about what the subject matter was. People everywhere I went, Portugal, India, Scotland, I spoke in all these places. All they wanted to talk about was Donald Trump. And, you know, we have this this image of being the great leaders of democracy. And you said in that article that uh, this could be a nail in the coffin of the myth of American exceptionalism. And that really, really bothers me. I think it rings true. Can you explain that? Well, uh, uh, first, I'd commend you to some of the great work Aziz has done on sort of comparing our uh, democratic erosion in the United States 
to, to the experience of other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was working in Congress, I spent a lot of time traveling around uh, working with legislatures in emerging democracies around the world through something called the House Democracy Partnership, uh, which is a bipartisan commission uh, that works to strengthen the, the development of democracy and especially parliamentary democracy uh, in about uh, 20, uh, 22 countries around the world. And uh, uh, I often found uh, ourselves traveling with groups of bipartisan groups of members of Congress as well as staff cast in the uh, in the position of having to, to sort of say follow <laughs> do as we say and, uh, and and not as we do. Yeah. Um, in other words, to uh, to talk about um, all of the reasons why the American experience with democracy might not be ap- applicable overseas. Even then, though, I was always struck by the reverence with which many of our counterparts abroad held the sort of first principles of democracy, the longevity of our constitution, uh, the the primacy of the legislative branch, uh, or at least uh, uh, in theory, the primacy of the legislative branch. Um, but it's been clear for some time now uh, that uh, that we've never lived up to those initial ideals. Uh, and that insofar as we've uh, ever been uh, a, a fully um, inclusive multiracial democracy, uh, it's only been for the last half century or so, and that we are in fact fairly young as, uh, uh, as a democracy in that respect. And so uh, all I meant there is that if, if there was any doubt about that uh, before this experience, um, you know the events of uh, Donald Trump's presidency uh, of of 2020 uh, election and of January 6, 2021, were yet another uh, sort of nail in the coffin of, of those doubts. And I, again, I say that not not to be uh, uh, overly critical or pessimistic, um, but uh, as someone who has experienced the reverence that uh, that many in the world show for uh, for the ideals. Um, that uh, this country was built on. Well, that's certainly my experience. First of all, you're talking to a guy without a vote, so so I, I understand that we don't always live up to our principles. But but I got to tell you, and I'd like Aziz to comment on this uh, since since he knows a lot about it. But I went to India, and they have a guy over there named Modi, who you guys are probably familiar with, and 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 he's much like Trump in in many ways. All they wanted to talk to me about was, uh, you know, what we were doing in the United States. And they, everybody I talked to saw America as a leader uh, in, in democracy. Uh, how, how do you think this hurts us, Aziz, internationally? Well, I think Asha put the, uh, the state of play very well. Uh, I think that I, I would just add to the uh, incisive comments that he just made that this, perceived and I think actual deterioration in the quality of American democratic institutions happens to coincide with uh, a more general return to what you might call great power politics with uh, nations like Russia, but also uh, China uh, 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 resisting the global system of institutions that was put in place largely thanks to the United States in the wake of World War II, uh, a global set of institutions that has been critiqued, I think, fairly in many ways, but one of which as aims was to uh, at least uh, uh, in name to advance uh, liberal democracy and the suite of personal freedoms that come under it. Obviously, it didn't always work that way, but that was what the orientation of the system was toward. So I think that we're at a moment at which uh, Russia and China in particular are bucking against our international, the international system that's been in place for 70-odd uh, years now, where they're offering distinctive versions of what it means to be a good state in which democracy does not play a role, or democracy does not play uh, the kind of meaningful role that that, uh, particularly, again, to repeat something Asha said, uh, it's come to play in the last 50 years in the United States. So this is not not just a moment of our weakness, it's a moment of strength on the part of other actors on the international stage. 
Yeah, let me add to that that we had a cabinet secretary, Jack Kemp, who was a Republican and supported our efforts to get a vote in Congress. And he said that's why he supported it, because he went to China to talk about human rights. And that's the first thing they said to him. Don't lecture us when you don't even let the people of your capital city vote. Uh, Mr. Hildebrand, I know you have to leave early, so I want to ask you before you go, if you have to leave, uh, is there anything else you want to add to, 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 to what you said today? Uh, I appreciate uh, – I, I think uh, you all have uh, – this has been a really interesting uh, conversation, uh, and I've appreciated both of your insights on the question. Um, and I'll just close with what I opened with, which is that uh, this is a terrible, terrible dilemma that no democracy should have to face. I personally believe that the uh, – that, that the – um, benefits of, of prosecuting or indi indicting Donald Trump uh, outweigh the costs, but it's an awfully difficult calculation. And so I'm just hopeful that um, that coming out of this uh, sort of in addition to whatever legal uh, proceeding comes out of this and whatever the outcome is uh, of that, that one thing that comes out of the January 6th committee's work and through the public debate that it has fostered is a renewed commitment on the part of the American people to upholding democratic principles. There's a kind of a conventional wisdom that um, that our views are so entrenched, uh, that we're so polarized, that uh, that nothing the, the committee can say or do is going to make an impact. And if you look just at aggregate data at, at Donald Trump's uh, popularity uh, or his favorability uh, or these sort of big questions, then it's hard to detect much movement. But if you look below the surface a little bit, you've already seen some really important movement that could have an impact in the margins. That includes uh, among independent voters, for example, a, f a far more uh, a significant increase in the number of, uh, of, of Americans who view the events of January 6 as an insurrection uh, and, a, and a commensurate reduction in the number of Americans who view it as an act of, of peaceful protest. You see, of course, within the Republican Party, more openness to candidates other than Donald Trump in 2024. Uh, and I'm hopeful that you will see, again, uh, the sort of majority of Americans who uh, who is remains committed to uh, principles of democracy, including the peaceful transition of power, that that commitment is solidified because uh, in addition to whatever legal proceeding we have, the, really the, the best and the only insurance policy we have in the long run of repeating this uh, is, is going to be through that public commitment. So I appreciate you having me on, and sorry I have to leave a little early. Well, we appreciate you being here, and thank you so much for the important work you do. Uh, and, and I hope as this proceeds, somewhere down the line, we'll all be able to get back together and I'll be able to say, yeah, you were absolutely right because uh, uh, I, I have the same hopes you do. So thank you so much for being with us, uh, Mr. Hildebrand. Take care. To Take right. care. So Aziz, it, it, it's you and me, and I think that Mr. Hildebrand's brought up the uh, a big, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in the room. What's more important, uh, unity or accountability. It's, you know, we, we're going to tear the country apart by prosecuting him, possibly, but is that more important than bringing the country back together somehow? I think that's a great way of putting the question, Senator. I, I think one way into it is to ask, well, why is there a tension in the first place? Why is it that the pursuit of accountability here uh, leads to disunity? And I think that there's a couple of things that are worth pointing out here. Uh, one is that it's really important how senior Republicans, particularly longstanding members of the party, react to the uh, uh, information that's being produced by the January 6th committee, commission, committee, excuse me. Uh, and I think here you, you've seen a real uh, difference between uh, a lot of the elected officials who, who have either been quiescent or critical of the January 6th committee, people like Elise Stefanik, uh, 
uh, I'd give us an example. Um, and people who are longstanding Republicans who are not uh, elected officials. So there, there's a number of uh, former judges who have publicly condemned uh, and in detail explain the fallacies of uh, the theory of alternate electors that John Eastman, along with the former president, were advancing. Um, so I think we have to think about what the role of, of elites here is. And then I, I, I think it's really important to, to see that one of the big reasons why there is a tension between accountability and unity is that uh, there's a slice of the American public that is not at all being exposed to the information that the January 6th commission, committee is producing, that there's a slice of the American people that are being uh, told things that I, I think are at bottom factually false. And, and this is not I, I, this is a problem that's often blamed upon social media. Uh, social media clearly has a role here. Uh, but talk radio and um, cable news uh, has potentially an even more important role here in shaping people's understanding. Um, and um, for very, very good reason, the freedom of those actors to speak and to decide what to say is protected constitutionally by the First Amendment. But it is one thing to say that speech is protected by the First Amendment. It is quite another thing to say that the exercise of that speech, the decision about whether to tell the truth or to tell a lie, has been responsibly exercised. And I think that part of the, the challenge of the situation we're in is the fact that what are rightly First Amendment freedoms are being exercised in ways that are irresponsible, that are antithetical to the project of unity with accountability. Yeah, well, I can't disagree with that. And we certainly uh, have seen, I think, you know, that my personal opinion is that people don't go out and search for the truth. Disease. They go out and they look for things that make them feel comfortable with what they already believe. They, they, they go out and they look for facts that support uh, what, whatever their particular belief is, no matter how ridiculous it is. I mean, you know, that we've got people from other countries sending in ballots and all this kind of ridiculous stuff. I don't think it matters to them. And I think also, as, as Hildebrand, as Mr. Hildebrand pointed out, we're always going for the people on the margins. We know that we're not going to change the minds of the, well, the people we call the, the Trumpers. So um, given that, uh, that we have those obstacles, uh, what do you think? I, I mean, I'm, I hope I'm not being redundant here, but... Do we have any hope under the 14th Amendment? Do we have any hope in, in by prosecuting Giuliani and Meadows and the other people that have been involved? Uh, or, or do we really do you really think we need to get him? We need to get him. We need to make an example. And, and let me just tell you something that I totally disagree with. The woman that we had on the show last week who were great. They said one of the reasons that we have to do this is that it has to be a deterrent. Well, I don't believe if Donald Trump knew that he stood to get prosecuted and go to jail, that that would have modified his behavior. What do you think? Do you think it can be a deterrent to, to, to prosecute him? I, I, I think it's, I think it's um, unlikely that um, you would see a deterrent in the particular sense that if Donald Trump were prosecuted, future actors, because of that prosecution, would believe that they couldn't get away with behavior that was anti-democratic uh, in uh, the use of official powers. I think that it's likely that uh, justice with ordinary crime, the fact that somebody, one person is prosecuted uh, for theft or for murder doesn't stop other people uh, engaging in theft or murder, right? We just don't, in ordinary criminal law, see deterrence working that well. I, I think the more important effect of a criminal prosecution, 
and, and I want to emphasize how, uh, how well Asher, I think, put the difficulty of judging whether if one was possible, it would be also wise. I think that, that the most important effect of that, if it were to proceed, would be to reset public expectations across the board or, as, or as, as widely across the board as, as one could of what appropriate behavior in office is. And, and so I think the, it's not so much that, that we might see um, deterrence occurring. It's that a criminal prosecution might lead to a reinforcement of certain norms which are important in a democracy. Well, um, yeah, I, again, I, I have to agree with you. You know, uh, politicians get, this is especially true in politics, because politicians get caught all the time for stealing money and prosecuted and go to jail, but it doesn't seem to stop a bunch of them from continuing to do that. Um, what, let me ask you the same question I asked Mr. Hildebrand. What is it? Is there something that you'd like to say that I'm not asking? Is there a, a is there a point that you think it needs to be made that that we haven't covered yet? I, I think that there's a question that's worth asking, but I'm going to confess before I put it on the table that I don't know the answer to the question. I think one thing that we see today is is a tremendous number of people who are open to misinformation, um, and in particular, misinformation about um, the 2020 election and what happened leading up to January the 6th. I think it's important to ask why people are open to that misinformation. What, what is it about our moment in America's political history that makes people so receptive to, I'm just going to call them lies, when there is information out there readily available that shows these lies to be untrue? What is it about our moment that makes it so ripe for misinformation? And I don't have an answer to that question. And it's a question about society as a whole. It's a really hard question to answer, but I it is, I think, a really important question. I agree that it's an important question. And I, I think that the Democratic Party, for example, of which I've been a member, uh, it seems like my whole life, needs to take some responsibility for this. Because I think that the environment, you know, I don't think Trump uh, just uh, got to the White House because of his uh charisma and and good looks. I think he got to the White House because the environment was right for somebody like him to to emerge. And we've seen this, like I said, in other places of the world. We've certainly seen it in England. We've seen it in India. We've seen it in Brazil that these populists are are, are growing because of uh, and moving up because of, of the environment. They're in. So I think you're right. And I think we need to change the environment and we need to take a little responsibility for it. Because again, I think people go out and look for verification of the way they feel. And when the president of the United States stands up there and says the election was stolen, that's enough verification for a lot of people. So what do we do now? If, if you know, if they made you, uh, they appointed you president tomorrow. What, what can we do, uh, Mr. Huck, to, to move the country forward? Uh, do you think that the simple answer is to prosecute him? I, I, I could Obviously, there is no simple answer to this. But do you have any ideas of how we move forward beyond Donald Trump? I, I think that, well, first of all, I, I know we're not gonna be, nobody's going to appoint me professor, uh, uh, me a mere professor, uh, president, not least because I'm not a natural born citizen, so I'm not eligible for um, the office. So yeah. let's just, let's just get that uh, uh, straight to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I do think that there's certainly things that uh, Congress can do. I think that reforming the Electoral Count Act is extraordinarily important. I think that 
um, addressing the uh, economic worries of voters in a more um, robust uh, form than the administration has been doing and, and communicating that. Um, I think communicating the uh, the value of, of loyalty to the American vision of democracy, uh, which I think is not something that can be said for Donald Trump, um, is an important rhetorical thing that, that the administration has not done effectively. Um, there's there's reforms such as uh, coming up with a revised structure for um, uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, uh, implementing legislative constraints on the White House's abuse of its control over the Justice Department. Um, there's lots of things that uh, can be done that were being discussed in the uh, period of the campaign that we don't seem to have se- had movement on. Um, but uh, it, so it's not that there's a shortage of ideas. Um, it's much more that there's a shortage of either bandwidth or political will at this moment, uh, even among the, the parties who you would think would be best positioned and best motivated to, to act. And on that score, I I'm, I'm want to echo and second what you said right at the beginning of your comments just now about, you know, we really need to take seriously the, the role of the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party. Yeah, I think we do. And, and I think that you know, uh, we're not acting out in, 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 in the best ways. Um, but, um, we should also point out, don't you think that the system held? That's, I think that's an important point to make that you had people like Raffensperger in, in Georgia and, and the guy in Pennsylvania who I can't remember, but you had these people who were Trump supporters and the guy in Texas, the attorney general in Texas, you had all these people that were Trump supporters, but when it came down to it, they stood up for the system. Did yeah, they not? Yeah. Yes. I think that's yeah. absolutely right. And, and, and that, that was true even of people in the white house. And let's be right. clear, it was even true um, of vice president Pence. Uh, Vice President Pence did not agree to uh, any of the illegal schemes for either holding up or derailing uh, the counting of electoral college votes on January the 6th. That's that's important to emphasize. Yeah, and I should say I lament the fact I think he would be a good Republican candidate, but I can tell you as a campaigner for 40 years, uh, he's he's not very – Vice President Pence is not very exciting – uh, unfortunately. Um, so do we just keep the electoral, you know, this has been a big thing in Congress over the last few years. Do we keep the electoral college the way it is? Do we need to reform the electoral college from, from your perspective or, and you know, there's people that want to get rid of the electoral college. Didn't the electoral college help save our democracy in this case? I think that there are, powerful reasons to reform the Electoral College from democratic first principles. I think that the um, not just the exclusion um, uh, of certain members of the American uh, polity, uh, but the disproportionate power uh, exercised by uh, residents of small states is a very good reason for uh, reforming the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the Electoral College is part of the Constitution's text, which means that uh, a change to the Electoral College would have to uh, come about through some kind of dramatic textual uh, constitutional change. Uh, There there has been talk of a convention being held under Article 5 of the Constitution, and indeed there's been an effort that's ongoing uh, to collect uh, uh, state ratification for the purpose of triggering that uh, convention, largely with an eye to introducing a balanced budget uh, amendment to the Constitution. Um, I, I am skeptical that the country is in a place where if a constitutional convention was, heard, was, was held, we would come up with something constructive. I, I worry that trying to do major constitutional reform where, say, the Electoral College was on the table would precipitate uh, worse kinds of social and even uh, violent conflict than we have now. So mm-hmm. I, I, absolutely, it might, in an ideal world, 
be great to reform the Electoral College. The problem is we don't have a way of getting there that doesn't have at least the risk of creating unacceptable social and human costs. Well, I agree with that. I, I think it's a very, very tough thing to do, and I think it's a close call in some cases, even though reform in, in, in some ways would be a good thing. Let me ask you, before I let you go, this final question, since you uh, deal with young people, you, 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 you teach in law school, do you have a, the feeling that we have the young people have the safe, same sense of America that, uh, well, I'm an old guy. So growing up, you know, we always we, we, there was a sense that we were in the greatest democracy in the world. Do young people still feel that you think? I, I, I think that there is more division and more disagreement and more disillusionment about among young people than there was in the past. I, I think that uh, both on the left and the right, and I happen to teach an institution where we have substantial representation from both conservative and liberal students, there is a profound sense of uncertainty uh, about the future. I think that uncertainty is takes very different forms. For example, the uh, students that I have who are LGBTQ have anxieties that the conservative uh, students who are not, uh, who are straight, just don't have. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that uh, the way in which those students are responding to these anxieties is very, very varied. Some of them are becoming radicalized. Some of them are becoming apathetic. It's very hard to see how that, it's very hard, at least for me, to predict how that all will play out. But you're absolutely right to say that the, the young people the teenagers, the early 20-somethings of today are in a really different position than the uh, analogous generation, let's say, 20 or 30 years ago. Oh, that's absolutely true. I mean, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't make these kids mortgage your future to pay for their education. I uh, that that's one thing right there that changes their position. I spent uh, I put myself through college and graduate school, and I think it cost me a thousand dollars a year. Uh, anyway, I thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Mr. Hawk, you've been a great guest. I think this is a conversation that's going to have to go on and on and on for a while until we see how things develop. But I appreciate you having input. It, it's, it's an important uh, issue for our country right now. And uh, I think the work you're doing is great. And, and thanks so much for being with us and, and continued success. And feel free to come back anytime. We would love to have you again as a guest. Well, I'd love to be back on the show, and thank you very much for having me this time. Okay, thanks. Okay. You know, we we end the show every week with a song. We dedicate it to our 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 guests, and uh, this week we had two great guests with uh, Asher Hildebrand and uh, Aziz Hawk. But last week we also had uh, two uh, great guests, uh, Dr. Laura Brown and, and Ruth uh, Bingott. Um, and I thought they disagreed with each other. But in the end, it seems like they agree more than they disagree. But anyway, here's a song about disagreement from uh, Mr. Mason. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>